All right. Well, welcome back for another edition of this podcast. I've got uh, Derek Hansen on today, and I've been looking forward to this one. Um, you know, I think that I I like it sometimes these things as an excuse, like you're coming to New York to do uh, your level two seminar for running mechanics. And it's kind of like, ah, it's a perfectly good excuse to get you on here and talk. But, um, you know, really, it's I started doing this because I just wanted to have good conversations with people that have been doing this for a while with a lot of wisdom. And I can't think of many people that have more training, wisdom and experience than you do. And, uh, yeah, so I want to for sure make uh, a point of giving you an opportunity to talk about level two of your running mechanics course. But outside of that, like I would I would love to hear some, um, you know, like actually starting off, I would I'm very curious about like kind of your your origins in some ways as an athlete and getting into coaching. And because uh, I'm, I'm always curious about like, hey, what landed people in this gig uh, in the first place? So if you want to introduce yourself, but I would I'm kind of particularly interested in in sort of the, the genesis of your story. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, like you, I was an athlete in, in high school, elementary school, you know, played a whole bunch of different sports and, and, um, had crappy coaches most of the time and, uh, w was made to do ridiculous stuff most of the time. And it was more of a, I don't know, it was, it was just more random and, and, and so, uh, you know, as a kid, you don't know, right? You just think, oh, that guy's a, that guy's older and he's a coach and he has, a, my soccer coach has a Scottish accent. He must know something, right? <laughs> you know, and then the next season, it's a, an Italian guy. And then the next season, it's a, you know, a Croatian guy or whatever. And so you're thinking, okay, they all have accents. They must know something. And, and, and same with track and field, you'll have like an Eastern European coach and, and you just defer. You're constantly deferring, right? And we were talking off camera about deference and, and now I don't defer to anybody. I'm like, fuck it. Mm -hmm. But, but, but certainly as a youngster, that's what you do as the adult, right? You follow what they say. And, um, I would say for the most part, it was, it was kind of dissatisfying from, from a coaching point of view of like, is this person giving me skills, uh, that I can use or, and again, I didn't know it at the time, but they, they weren't delivering, uh, the instruction very well. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it was like watching a, a Rudy movie, right? Like, you know, they just made you do rough, stupid stuff and, and hopefully you won it at the end. Right. So I, I think for me now going back and looking at whether it was basketball or soccer or baseball or, or track, whatever sport it was, I just felt like, you know, and, and let's be honest, it's, it's, it's other people's parents that are coaching, right? So, you know, I have these unrealistic expectations, I guess, but, but I, I just felt like people didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I think I carry that. And then, you know, I go to university and I, I specialize in track because I think because of that team sport disappointment, you know, and then, and people, you know, not knowing, you know, how to develop the team and which guys to put in and, you know, um, having some favoritism. I'm like, I'm going for an individual sport because at least I can control, you know, the outcome a little more. And, you know, I, it's up to me. Right. So I, I, that's why I gravitated towards the individual sport. And I was, I was, you know, I was okay. 
at doing, I was in long jump, triple jump, and then I did some sprints. Um, and I, I think I just like the idea of, you know, what are the inputs that we are doing? And we weight lifted a lot, probably more than we needed to. And then how much farther did I jump or how much faster did I run? And so that kind of stuck with me is like, okay, I want to see a, you know, definite improvement from the work that I'm doing and the quality of the work and the volume of the work. And I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, who was a, a training partner when we were in university, we did the same events and we were talking about like all of the stuff we did, like sort of general preparatory stuff where, you know, a lot of the time it was just made us really tired. And I understand you know, the general fitness piece, but I'm always thinking like, okay, what if we had done a little more of this and a little less of this? Would it ha would have had a different outcome in terms of my performance? And I don't know, but I, I think that's what's constantly turning in the back of my head is when I'm putting a program together or I'm building a course around planning uh, for speed. I want to make sure that any recommendation that I put in there or any input is going to have at least an indirect effect, if not a direct effect on my performance and, and my durability or whatever you want to call it, resiliency. And and I think, you know, I, I see what now my kids are in sport and I see what other people give them. And so as a parent, you're just like, oh, geez, it's kind of like revisiting what I did as a kid and all this useless stuff that they're getting them to do. Um, but now I, I actually have my daughter with a good, uh, Polish coach, high jump, and I'm watching what he's doing and everything is very deliberate. So I'm like actually very happy with that. But but certainly uh, for myself, thinking about how I'm going to tell other people to plan and how to do exercise selection and and progression and, and all of those things is extremely important to me. And I'm so I'm still working on that course that I'm going to deliver in New York uh, at the end of November because I'm just like, I want to make sure that it's absolutely clear this is this is how I see things and you understand why I decided to do it this way. I can certainly relate to everything that you said there. And um yeah, you know what's funny is where I grew up, I'm I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and we have the Cape Cod Baseball League there. And baseball was my primary sport. And even from a very young age, eleven years old, I was able to go to their summer camps and this is an unbelievable opportunity you have because as a kid, you'll get coached by typically the assistant coach of the team uh, for your town and then a few of the players. And so, you know, these are all high level division one coaches and athletes that are the athletes oftentimes are going to go to uh, either minor leagues or major leagues. And these coaches are, are some of the best in the country. So, I was able to receive this very high level coaching in baseball at 11 years old, 12 years old, 13, you know, like for a few years in the summertime. And you even from there, I knew that all the other coaching I was getting was just garbage, you know, mm -hmm. because the you can, there's such a feel and uh, element of elite coaching and mastery where it's like they make small changes to you that are explained simply and they have dramatic differences in the outcome and then you get like like you said like other kids dads or something like that and they're just saying nonsense and and I'm so it drove me crazy a lot of those things drove me crazy because I was you know I'm still the same way if you tell me to do something I'm going to do that thing 
as far as it can get pushed. And if it works, like I've had a few experiences where things really work and that's amazing. And then I've had a whole ton of experience with things being terrible recommendations and you get nothing for it. And I don't know if there's many things more frustrating than really high levels of investment with very little return on that. And so when I try to design things, I, I think that I have that obsessiveness about like this better return as close to maximally as I can get, or I'm really going to be bothered by it. And, um, you know, you were in the Vancouver seminar I did, and I'm, I'm big on trying to create algorithms and principle-based approaches so that I take as much of my own in-the-moment decision-making out of it as possible so that it just runs like a machine from a decision-making perspective as opposed to any other thing. Because I, I do think, you know, I, I, I often explain it with um, playing fantasy sports. You know, like if you want to play fantasy baseball, you cannot win anymore. The hedge fund algorithms will always win. They will always win. A, a human brain cannot keep up with that stuff. But it is just based on inputting simple rules into these systems. And then those rules just always play themselves out from a decision-making standpoint. So, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that's the future of programming, but we're not close as a field, you know? And um, so I, I kind of almost have like a two-part thing. I, I know you spend a lot of time looking at things like ACL injuries, hamstring injuries, Achilles injuries in, in the NFL and the NBA. And, you know, it's, it's, there's, I know you have thoughts on like what's driving the bus on how many of those injuries we have. But also some of the frustration points with coaches. So, like, you know, I guess like if you could kind of dovetail those things, like why why are we seeing these chronic problems with these these injury rates that are through the roof? And and how how are coaches associated with that or coaching style, strategies, abilities? Yeah, I, you know, and I wish I had like a a really specific answer, but I don't. And and so an example would be you have the people who are uh oh it's 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 bad training. That's why there's more ACL injuries. And then you have the it's the grass versus turf debate, right? So it's environmental um or is it training related, right? And my reply to that is it's both. Um because you you can't deny the fact that and I don't think it's the turf per se. I think it's this I think uh, George Kittle was uh, I posted something where he was saying like it's you know we're on different surfaces all the time and it's different qualities of turf different qualities of grass and I think that's a problem because you know you 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 could argue they're very fine-tuned uh, high output um, individuals right and so if you're on a different surface it, it's the feedback is different and uh, it can create some issues so I think that's part of it. it's partially partially the surfaces but it's partially their preparation of, you know, have you made sure as part of your preparation that you've been on turf grass, you know, and I, I've shown some examples of people training on sand and you can be imperfect on sand because, you know, the sand buffers any, you know, forces that could go up the chain and, you know, snap your, your Achilles or your ACL or whatever. Um, so if you're doing sand all the time and then you're on turf for training camp, yeah, that's a problem. So mm -hmm. I think it all goes back to this idea of 
selection of exercise and the environment you do it in, uh, this idea that you, um, you know, the progression in training camp is, is, you know, everybody's competing for spots and cuts have to be made by this week. And if you ever watch hard knocks, you see how tough it is. Right. Uh, and everybody's agonizing over, we got to figure out who to pick and who to cut. And, and so it's, it's a very stressful situation. So there's all these factors. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, can you blame the coaches per se? You, I don't know if you can blame the NFL coaches, at least the strength coaches. So let's talk about the strength coaches because they only have five weeks in the off season with the players. If the players decide to show up. So, I mean, what, what could you and I do in five weeks? You know, we're pretty much trying not to mess people up. And I think that's the approach is like, let's take a lighter approach. And, or the other thing is let's try to do everything in five weeks. Let's cover off strength, mobility, speed, agility, explosiveness, aerobic endurance this and then it, it, five weeks it's like everything's diluted so much that you've really done nothing so i think it's very tough uh to blame like a coaching staff and say that's the problem having said that i think there's things that can go on in practice that create problems like you know i, I hate mentioning teams but there's certain teams that have higher injury rates and then, you know, the, you'll see that there'll be injuries in practice. And and I know working with the Chiefs, I know uh, Andy Reid is very good about, you know, this player load management and not in the way that you would think, like not like, well, he's very careful. I think he loads them with a lot of reps in camp in the early part of the season, the first half of the season. And then he starts tapering off in terms of the the duration of practice. And, and so there's just a natural practice intensity and load accumulation that helps for later in the season in the postseason and maybe you know i've heard some things about the patriots doing certain types of things with runs and and practice and all that so i think choices in practice are extremely important in terms of that moving through the season in the nfl and making sure that we don't unload and you know oh we're going to bench these guys because we're going to save them which is not a very good idea either you know, if you look back, you know, the, everybody throws up Michael Jordan never took time off. And, you know, he had a pretty durable career. And Jerry Rice is another one. Right. Mm-hmm. So you hear about those athletes. But I, I, you know, it's it's so difficult nowadays to to put your finger on just one thing and 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 get all of those, you know, get the right coach who knows how to work the practice, get the right strength coach who knows okay, these are the big rocks that we can make a difference and maybe we won't worry about that other stuff. And then in the off season, maybe they're with a private sector person who who's on board with what everybody else is doing and everybody's everything's you know dovetailing really nicely. But I don't know if that exists, you know, as, as prominently as it should. You know, I, uh, I, I'm a big believer in science and progress. You know, I mean, that like that's, I don't, I don't, I don't have much for religion in my life, but if, if there is a God, I think it's progress. And, um, you know, when I think of progress and industry and productivity and things like that, the first order of business is standardization. You know, you have to standardize your operating procedures. And once you do that, you can now really begin to evaluate the power and the efficacy of, of variables. And you can kind of do that one at a time and look like the wheels of science are slow to turn, 
But once they turn and something's been figured out, like, wow, it's a powerful, it's a very powerful phenomenon at that point that you can really rely on. And when I think about a lot of pro sports, you know, like, I think from the outside looking in, all of us are like, well, they must have the best of the best working in there and their methods must be so sound and incredible. And and the reality is, is that it's a bit of like a, uh, you know, a broken machine that's being held together by duct tape and bubble gum. And there's like smoke coming out the sides and the wheels are falling off the wagon. And um, but the the real thing, there's no standardization, it seems like. And you get guys with their guy in the summer and who the hell knows what they're doing. And and like you said, five weeks, I think about that five weeks as a as a coach to be able to get your athletes where you want them. Are you kidding me? That's that's no time for anything. What quality are you going going to develop in five weeks? Maybe an aerobic system a little bit, you know, kind of get it, get the ball rolling. But I would for sure be terrified of causing more harm than than accomplishing anything in five weeks. And I would definitely err on the side of caution if that's my job. So is that good? Like, you know, you brought up play, um, you know, uh, load management. And, you know, I think of of Tim Gabbett as really kind of one of the, the main sources of starting that whole movement in Australia. And you know, I think his work with the acute to chronic training load ratio and like how much should you increase or decrease total workload on a week to week basis. And he's got his nice tight little, little windows, but in hearing him speak, you know, his big concern is on training troughs and training spikes. And that's the most common thing that you have. And so you have people going along doing whatever training, and then there's a trough for various reasons. Like I know in the NBA, they always are concerned about the all-star game week as a major trough. You know, guys are off for the week. They go home, they maybe party or whatever. And then they come back and they go right back into the normal NBA schedule. And like two weeks after the all-star break, you see this incredible surge in injuries because it's a, a, a trough of activity. And then a in, in from a ratio perspective, a spike which is just kind of going back to normal. The other big scare from what I understand numbers wise is when a bench player replaces a starter in the NBA, because now all of a sudden they're bumping, they're spiking their workload up to starter game intensity minutes. And they're like two weeks after they replace a starter. Oftentimes you see these, these catastrophic things happen, but it's, it's Gabbett is also very clear on, you know, there's moderators of, you can moderate the possible downsides of troughs and spikes by a few things. The age of the athlete, older athletes, you know, there's less of a buffer. The physical strength of the athlete, stronger athletes have more of a buffer. And the aerobic fitness of the athlete, the more aerobically fit, the more of a buffer. So he's like, look, I, I want guys in great shape that work out you know, a lot and that, that train. I'm not, I didn't, you know, he didn't put it together to make it a softer, nicer world. It's just that sometimes the interpretation is like, ah, let's, you know, it's almost like give them a holiday, give them a break, but they're athletes. Like they need to train, they need to work. And, you know, I, I think that the, the recipients of some of this information misinterpret it so badly, but it, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I, 
I, I think that so many people are so grateful to think that they hear something that gives them a chance to not train. It's almost like we're getting softer. And some of that softness, I think, goes into uh, creating problems. I mean, when I did your summer speed program a couple of years ago, I was kind of like, oh, man, Derek is not the kind of coach that gives you a break. Like, this is a hard program. Like, this is super challenging. This is beyond my current fitness levels. I actually need something more remedial to to get going with. But you definitely, uh, you know, I from from my experience with you, I think that training, training hard, training appropriately is always something that you're thinking of as a positive for people. And yeah, the, I, the whole, like you said it, right? Like you need to create people that are very uh, fit and, um, and, and the whole point of training is to create reserves, right? So, uh, you know, so, so a football coach was at, telling me like, oh, you know, our linemen all have shoulder issues. And well, if they were significantly stronger and skilled in their opposition, then they're not going to have those issues. If I'm battling somebody on the line and they're, you know, 20% stronger, probably going to you know grate on my shoulders right and i'm going to have problems so you're trying to create a reserve above and beyond what your normal operating sort of output is uh whether it's aerobic whether it's strength whether it's uh speed um you know explosiveness or whatever it may be strength endurance and i think that's that's what i'm always thinking about is like let's get way over that bar let's you know, let's make sure that I can pole vault 620 and I can win the meet with 590, right? 5.90 meters, right? And that's what that one guy, the the Swedish guy, um, is done. So you're so far above your competition that you can just go on and have an easy day and, you know, get through or 100 meters, right? Get through the round so I can run, I can run 959. So I can run 990 or 995 in the rounds and still beat most of the field. And just it'll be a jog. So I think that's the way I think of it is, you know, it's not good enough just to be kind of there. You want to be above that. And and then you have this reserve to play with. So when you taper down and you don't lose too much, you don't detrain too much. Right. Or you have you have some room to do that. What do you see as some of the the big differences between if you're developing a track athlete, an elite sprinter? versus a team sport speed athlete like you know what sorts of, of big differentiation points do you have in your mind for those populations i mean i think it is this idea again um you know if i'm if i you know again i think of like formula one uh car versus a jeep renegade right you know it's it's going to be different in terms of my focus throughout the year is probably going to be on, on more multifaceted elements for that, that football athlete, that team sport athlete, so that I'm keeping them foundationally strong. Whereas that track athlete, I need those spikes of very specific, whatever, uh, you know, a flying 20 at over 11.5 meters per second so that I know that you can hit that velocity and hold that velocity uh, I need to work on your start, you know, that that initial burst out of there. And we need to work on it a lot. But, you know, will improving your aerobic system get that time down from 995 to 985? Eh, all right. But I know that improving the aerobic system of an NFL athlete or NHL player 
is going to serve them throughout the regular season and into the playoffs and help them recuperate, especially when they have to travel, you know, and or they play at altitude. Um, so I think it's that that resilience factor or that sort of general it's more of a general preparatory approach for the team sport athlete and then the game practice and the game addresses their specifics whereas in track and field I have this long off season and I have to hit those things because we don't have track meets throughout the year they're you know kind of the end of the year and then we have our track meets and you still use the track meets to tune them up but it's it's just different it's just much more specialized um and, 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 you know, you try to, you try to capture that intensity and that stimulus, and then you need to recover from it for a while before you hit it again. And then, you know, it's, it's just very different, but I think you can still kind of pull from both of those scenarios and, and maybe, you know, at the end of the season of that track athlete, you have to go back and say, well, maybe general fitness qualities were something that we we're lacking and we didn't spend enough time on in the off season or maximum strength. You know, maybe we have to develop that a little more um, and then, you know, you know, eventually get back into the specifics. Um, whereas with the NFL athlete, well, you know, his top speed on the field was like 20.9 miles per hour, according to GPS. And some of the top receivers at that position are hitting high 21s. So maybe there's some specific speed work we can do to get that guy, you know, working on deeper routes and, you know. So it, it, I think you can work on both ends of that spectrum. Mm. You know, uh, kind of curious, when you think of uh, developing track athletes specifically, you know, I, I know that there's some like some fairly classical kind of volume recommendations for high intensity work, low intensity work. But with, you know, a lot of sports at a certain point with it becomes very individualized for for athletes, like the kind of volume. Did you see a lot of differences or is it a fairly homogenous group in terms of volumes that seem to drive performance? Or is it a very heterogeneous group in terms of, hey, this this person needed completely different kinds of volume prescriptions for high and low intensity stuff? Um. I think I think it is it is similar, but how they get there is very different. So some people may rely more on maybe a general program in the off season, and then they rely on a large number of competitions to to get that that stimulus at a very very you know high uh, level, so that they get the adaptations from the competition, which isn't a bad approach in track and field. If you can get the competitions in Europe, there's probably more competitions you can hit. Uh, the, the, the parallel would be like the NCAA in the U.S. where you have meets every weekend and, and, and it's very common for if you're a good sprinter, you're doing the one, the two, the four by one, the four by four. Um, like there's the one female athlete from Kentucky. Uh, I can't remember her name offhand, but, but, you know, she was good and she ran 10 nine in the one or 10 eight or something and 21 high or 21 mid or something like that in the two. And then she ran a four by four. Um, so she's getting a lot of exposure from the competitions themselves. So I don't know if you have to be as specific in, in the off season. Whereas, um, I know in, in certain circumstances, when you get to a certain level, there's just not as many meets. So you have to create these scenarios within training where you're hitting higher velocities and you, and if that's the case, you better live in Florida or Jamaica or, you know, maybe Arizona or somewhere where it's warm. Uh, if you live in Toronto, it's not going to happen, right? So, 
I think, you know, those are the types of considerations that you're thinking about is that you need a scenario for a track athlete, at least for like the speed and power. If you're a long jumper, or javelin thrower, or whatever, you need a stimulus that's so high that's going to keep advancing you. Because if you don't get that stimulus, uh, you're essentially detraining. If you go to the track and you're running at 10.2 second 100 meter pace uh, and you need to run 9.8 or 9.7, you know, where are you going to get it from? Um, you know, you, you, I mean, you could say, well, we're going to run downhill or you see the the bloody Italian guy has like a, the Pope mobile in front of him as he runs behind <laughs> it. Right. And okay. That too. Right. You know, and, and we're not even talking about what other stuff they may do, be doing from a pharma, pharmacological point of view, but, but you need, and even if you're doing that, you need that stimulus behind you to create the adaptation. So, um, you know, figuring that out is very tough these days and, and whether it comes from a competition, how many competitions, how many races, uh, when do we start tapering off so that we can peak uh, for a big meet? And, and and the problem is with that is that if you're a track athlete, you need to make money too. So you need to go into certain competitions to to make money so that you can you know keep fueling your training. And and sometimes if you're trying to win every race or get in every race, it does kind of wear on you, and you can burn yourself out before by the time you get to the Olympics. And you're like, what happened to this guy? He was winning all those races before. So he just didn't, you know, didn't plan properly or just didn't have the choice to. It's, you know, in, in um, what I read from like, you know, the old Charlie Francis stuff was the, you know, like always the recommendation, like the high intensity work needs to be 95% plus. And if it's not, then like the hip height isn't high enough and the mechanics are different. You know, the specificity of the mechanics you you and and so I always thought, wow, that's a very small margin. You know, you have to be at ninety five percent top speed or faster for the specificity to actually be uh, in play for the qualities that you're trying to train with with top speed development stuff. And it sounds it sounds like you're you're really like reiterating that in a, a major way from that perspective with the stimulus that you're talking about, like you, you really almost need like competitions to be able to, to kind of hit that uh, consistently to drive that, that forward, you know? So do you, do you really think like uh, anything below that is kind of in that no man's land of too slow to drive top speed adaptations and too fast to be able to provide a recovery uh, element as well. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm constantly thinking about. Is and, and even if, if we if we nail it down to like the minutia of a ground contact time or ground contact, and then so the foot hits the ground. So what happens? Well, there's going to be stored elastic energy within that you know the foot and the lower leg. Some of that is uh, is structural, right? So the bones may flex, the, the the tendons and ligaments may stretch, and some of it is neurological in terms of like a stretch reflex response. And so, I would say on both levels, you want to make sure that you're maximizing that response or the the you know the the output that you get out of that. Um, so you need a, a certain temperature, right? So you you and I are not going to do this with Wim Hof, right, in the North, you know, Arctic Circle, we're not going to get faster. It just doesn't happen. If you, you know, you just know, I, I remember I was working with BMX cyclists and they have the, um, 
the output sensors and the cranks. And, and we noticed a huge difference between, you know, 10 degrees, 10 to 15 degrees uh, of temperature change in terms of power output. So we know that when it's cold, you ain't going to run fast and possibly you could get injured. So like I said, if, if you are on a good surface in uh, Texas when it's 100 degrees or LSU or Georgia or wherever all the great sprinters are in America or Florida, you're going to get a better training response, right? And so you're 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 seeking that out. You're seeking the competition. You're seeking the environment. Uh, obviously, you want to have a good training plan, and you have enough recovery in between those exposures, if we call it that, so that you're you know you know you're super compensating in the way that you need to without overloading those tissues to the point where things rupture. And and I know the one sprinter. Uh, Trayvon Bromel had a lot of Achilles issues, right? So it's very easy to fall off the wagon if you're trying to hit that too much and too hard and, and things can just implode on you. So it, it's, it's really tough. That's a really tough business. I have a lot of respect for the people who are coaching those athletes. And, you know, again, a lot is on the line at these big meets at the world championships at the Olympics to produce. And if you don't, you know, somebody was, I was telling somebody, if you're Usain Bolt, Yes, you can make millions of dollars, right? The guy in second place, you know, that's a big drop. If you're what if you're like the this the eighth best quarterback in the NFL, you could still make 35 million a year, right? Or, you know, whatever position or pitcher or whatever, you could still make a gazillion dollars. But if you're the second fastest guy in the world, you know, you'll do okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's it's really it's really a tough go. I mean, I, I'm I'm fascinated by it. From, from just, uh, you know, being somebody who trains athletes as, as, as you, right? Like you want to understand that and you want to, it would be interesting to spend time at that level, but the, you know, the payoff isn't great. So right. not a great career choice. Who do you think is the best athlete you've ever seen in person? In person. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a tough one. I mean, because again, you know, it, it encompasses a lot of things. Yeah. When you say athlete, right? It's not the fastest, it's not the strongest, um, but it could be. Yeah, I mean, it could be. I'm just trying to think. You know, like, 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 like yeah, I was watching the games this past weekend, and you look at somebody like Tyree Kill, and you know, tremendously fast you know, very good at accelerating, changing direction. You know, he's built too. He's quite thick and strong and, and, and a good receiver. Um, and he tends to produce on a regular basis in under very stressful conditions. So, you know, I mean, uh, he's not maybe the best, but certainly seeing somebody like him is really impressive. Um, but, you know, as far as track athletes, you know, I've I've seen you know people like Donovan Bailey and Bruni Sir, and they both ran nine point eight four, um, but it is very one dimensional. So I don't know if I would pick like a track sprinter. Um, I would probably pick somebody who's like like you said in the NFL or, you know, and and the reason I pick the NFL is there's so many qualities around the the psychological component of going out there. Like I watched somebody like Travis Kelsey. And he's a big dude. He runs well. He catches well. But he gets hit a lot. Like, he just, like, people are teeing off on him because he's big. 
And you just wonder, wow, this guy keeps coming back. Like he's in his thirties now. And they're talking about like, maybe he could be the best tight end or, or Gronkowski. Right. And how much punishment they went through. Whereas you watch the guy who's the baseball player or the soccer player. And you're like, man, it doesn't even compare. You know, uh, I was thinking of, you know, there were, there were, I was watching um, Tua and he's like diving for first downs. Everybody's like, Oh, right yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so and i'm thinking about well what about like you know troy palomalu like he was hammering people and you know and they just kept coming back and there's this intensity and this desire and this resiliency and 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 almost to some degree uh reckless abandon that i don't necessarily see in these other sports so i don't know i'm gonna have to say like i never saw bo jackson play yeah. But that would have been impressive to see on f- at field level, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and you see what he accomplished. And obviously, you know, it was ended by an injury, but or Deion Sanders. And I saw, you know, he's has all these troubles with his legs. He had clots in his legs and, and he had to have all these surgeries and toes removed. And you're like, wow, like that's that's significant. So it's I mean, I'm biased because, you know, I've I've seen some of the stuff firsthand, but. Uh, I, I just, I, I feel when I mix in the performance with the punishment and the, you know, there's something to that, that ruggedness is, um, a very admirable quality with, and, and I mean, I just think in terms of a talent pool, nothing in, in the Western hemisphere is close to the NFL. You know, I, I don't know, like international, I would assume soccer is probably ridiculous, but the best athletes in, you know, North America play in the NFL. And, you know, when, when you see someone that's a standout in the NFL, like a Lamar Jackson, like the athleticism that he must possess has got to be just off the charts. Like if, if he was just funneled into a different sport, like, I mean, the gold medals that that guy could have won would be, you know, just easy pickings in some ways, but it's, um, it's a, it, there's nothing else that really compares in, in, in the United States or anywhere in North America to the talent level that, that exists in NFL athletes. I don't think. I, I agree. I just can't, I, you know, and, and, and you could probably take, you know, 10 to 12 guys out of the NFL and say like, you could have been track sprinters and they might've beat everybody that, you know, if they, they trained as a track sprinter, like uh, what's his name? DK Metcalf running 10, three, mm-hmm at whatever 260 pounds or two whatever he is yeah i I mean it's i I think about a guy like saquon barkley if you put him into weightlifting or something like that yeah you know i i just think that um other other countries in the olympics they don't really get a sense of like where the real athleticism is over here like it's it's in the nfl and if, if those guys get funneled elsewhere they would dominate pretty much anything that they get put into um, in terms of strength, power, and probably other things as well. I, I think about, I don't know who the guy was that that had the interception over the weekend that did the head first dive and somersault into the end zone. But I mean, it, it looked like he traveled about, you know, 25 feet through the air and was about 10 feet off the ground on that thing. It literally looked like a missile getting launched through space. So it's kind of like, and and there's so many of these guys. When when I was a professor at Brooklyn College, we had a, uh, I had a student there, and this guy was cut from the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was a he was probably about five eight, 
and weighed about 205 pounds. He was a safety. And, you know, laser timer was like a 43840 and hit like a 41 inch vertical. But was, you know, I was like, why are you not in the NFL? You know, he was just like so unbelievably. He was like, you know, the talent gets sent home from that league on a regular basis. That was all he said, you know, and um, he was he was kind of mentioning like the playbook was was tough. Like maybe he just wasn't a great football player. I don't fully know. Or maybe he wasn't the right size and shape for that position. But I've never seen anything like this guy in my life. And, you know, I've been around pro athletes and in in lifting sports and strength power sports, the whole thing. And I, I still think to myself, this guy was head and shoulders above anybody uh, that I've worked with. And he was cut, you know, on his first year from the Steelers. So it, it always just floors me when I think about what is out there and um, and and how little some other sports really are aware <laughs> of how, how short their talent pools really are. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. Well, and, and on top of it, like you said, um, the playbook and, and understanding the game and, you know, you know, you know, they have hundreds and hundreds of plays to remember. And I remember somebody was uh, an athlete that I'd worked with was going to try out for, uh, I can't remember at the Colts or something like that. He was an old lineman and he said they would put him in for a rep. And if he made one mistake, he was kind of sent to the back of the queue in terms of like the play call or something like that. And, and that, that's the other part of it is you have all of these tremendous athletes, but you have to know where to be and which direction to go and which play call and all that. And so that's an extra layer of, of, you know, complexity or or that you have to have. Otherwise, like you said, you're filtered out. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah. There's no room for error. You know, that no. it's like that in some other areas, too. You know, I mean, you get into uh, trying to be a partner in a prestigious law firm. Same thing. You're trying to be a resident at John Hopkins. It's the same thing. Like, I always looked at it like, hey, uh, find where the talent pool is a little bit less and go in there because it's so much more likely that you're going to make a huge impact in that area. Rather that's than, why we're that's why we're in uh, strength and conditioning and fitness. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I made that as a conscious decision back when I was, you know, in my 20s. I, I was kind of like, eh, you know, I think, and I I kind of went the route of being an educator and a professor with it because I sort of looked around. And I was like, at least where I was in in Boston, it was like, well, Cressy and Boyle have this thing on lockdown. I'm not gonna like crack into that and run my own facility and like supplant these guys. And out west, you got Verstegen. And, uh, you know, that's a hard road to, like, get up to the top quickly. But I was like, you know, I, there's really not many, like, people with PhDs that, like, have made a name for themselves. Or, like, you know, most of them are into, like, just measuring VO2 in a laboratory and drawing blood and playing with pipettes. But I feel like if I'm able to have that academic background and also be like, you know, a meathead and, and a coach and all that kind of stuff, that's a differentiating point. Like there, it, there's there's space there for me to be able to move into and to make a quicker impact because it's not flooded with talent in that specific place. So I, I think it turned out that I was right about that. But, uh, you know, so often I see people 
not recognize where those uh, log jams are, where it's like, are you sure you really want to go down this road? Like, it's going to be a hard road. Uh, I think if you if you flowed over in this direction a little bit more, you'll just go right around the corner and it'll be very easy green grass to go feed on where there's nobody currently playing. Um, yeah, it seems like field goal kicker is that one right now, right? Like if you could be a good field goal kicker, you'll probably clean it. If you're Justin Tucker or whatever, but but yeah. These, these guys, though, I will say, you know, it reminds me a bit of like NFL quarterback. Because I think about that a lot, actually. Well, not on a daily basis or anything, but <laughs> there's not many jobs for quarterback that are available. You know, like you've had guys in this league forever. Like you got Brady, who's been in the league for what, 22 years now? Rogers forever. Uh, you know, you go kind of down the list. Every year, there's only like, what, maybe like five to eight jobs that are available to compete for. That's nothing. And, you know, I'm sure that the guys that are backups, I bet that you like, if, if you or I had to evaluate like, like a blind taste test sort of a thing, backup NFL quarterback versus starting NFL quarterback, it's probably really hard to distinguish between these guys. Mm -hmm. And, um, Anyways, like kind of the point I'm making is I don't like kicker is kind of similar. Like some of these, like Adam Vinatieri didn't retire until he had a Santa Claus beard. I mean, he was he was like 75 years old, I think, by the time he retired. And and I remember as a kid, you had like Morton Anderson, I think Gary Anderson. Those guys were ancient. And um, so it's hard to crack into that. And um but they do get hurt surprisingly frequently and they mentally seem to fracture sometimes, but uh, God, these, these guys are, I mean, there's more 60 yard field goals. I feel like nowadays. Oh yeah. Twice a a huge margin. I mean, it's like 50 yarders are like routine chip shots almost for these guys. Yeah. They they seem to actually miss more of the intermediate ones, right? (laughs) Like it's not the extra points. Yeah. Like, (laughs) It's incredible, though. I, I mean, it, I, do you think there's any barefoot kickers that still exist anywhere in the world at this point? I, you know, I don't know. Not from North America, but I'd like to see that again. Um, I remember, I, I remember watching it. Was it an ESPN thirty for thirty or a E sixty or something? And they it was did like, something wow. on those guys. I think so. I think I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, there were a um, lot of them when I was a kid. You know, or maybe yeah. I mean, they, there was at least three or four of them in the league. But yes. you know, it seems like an insane thing now. But there were there were quite a few. It was a real thing back then. Yeah, like they could feel the ball better on their foot or something yeah sure (laughs) can you imagine that being out in like freezing yeah green bay yeah they were kicking out in freezing temperature barefoot kickers on a basically like a brick that you're trying to kick well you know with my luck i'd have the barefoot i'd kick the big field goal and then like somebody would step on my foot as they came through to try and block Mm -hmm. it so yeah yeah like aaron donald or something yeah So I, I do want to talk about the um, the level two course and, and what you've got going on with that. I know you mentioned in passing to me that you've got a little bit more in the way of like programming and being able to coordinate uh, what would be involved with people that want to lift and run at the same time. 
but yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some of the differences between your courses? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to do two days uh, in New York City at the Reload uh, Physical Therapy and Fitness. And um, the, the first day is just the basic level one course. So in case somebody's missed that, uh, some people might retake it. But uh, the level two course is really just an extension of that course. And it just is like a deep dive into the periodization and planning with a running and speed emphasis. So, okay, let's figure out, you know, First of all, how do we make somebody faster if we just look at the running volumes and the the interaction between like starts and acceleration and max velocity and and then we start going, okay, well, what are some things that that are supportive elements, whether it's jumps, plyometrics, throws, um, tempo runs, obviously the weightlifting, a lot of people because that's at least on the on the private sector side, working with gyms and, and different individuals. Um, a lot of people are really starting from a weightlifting base. Like that's how they got into it, whether it was CrossFit or, or Olympic lifting, whatever. And now they want to add some running. And as you, as you found out, that can be pretty tricky sometimes because, you know, just the nature of, of, of how your muscles are involved in running. And there's like a suppleness and there's a, there's like an impact you know, that's associated with running that you have to really get up to speed with. Otherwise you get shin splints or tendonitis and all that. So I think understanding how people can progress with the running um, and maybe adjust their lifting. And it might not be, a you know, the exercise selection. It might just be like, why don't you, you know, bring the volume of work down while we introduce these elements that are, are, are running related or drills or jumps and, and get people ready and then you can bring the weights back up in this phase and then you bring them back down when you run a little faster. I think understanding what those interrelationships are is very important because I still think there's there's a, a prevailing sort of attitude around, well, if I'm stronger, I'll definitely run faster. And, and you know, yes, to some degree, but there's, there's a, a specific type of strength you want to pull out of those maximum strength workouts and those other lifting uh, sessions that are kind of a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And I think that's where people get caught up. And even I did when I was younger, you know, oh, you know, I can squat 500 pounds and, you know, how come my 100 meter time hasn't changed, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's frustrating, I think. If, if you put in that time to get stronger, you want to be able to convert that uh, efficiently and safely. And, and, and the other part of it is there's a psychology around, hey, if you want to get faster, you don't necessarily have to be stronger and you might be able to let some of that go a bit. You may be able, you know, you're used to doing three big lifts. Maybe you do two or, you know, I think that's okay to, you don't have to be super strong all the time. And some of the times when you're less strong, that energy goes towards the running or, or, or whatever else you're doing. And I think that, you know, you see that very clearly you know, we talk about the NFL, if you and I walk into, you know, the Giants or the Jets uh, weight room, um, a lot of the best players aren't killing it in the weight room because they have to have that energy for other things like namely football. Right. So I think you have to be really careful um, which, uh, you know, which strings you pull in order to get the the result that you want. And, you know, and then that, that's what that's, you know, we'll we'll take people through some examples and cases and all that. Um, but that's what I want people to start thinking about is how do I prioritize different elements throughout a training program to get the right effect ultimately? Right. You know, I have, 
I've had three years now of training with speed elements being back in my life. And it's been a really interesting process. And I feel like this summer was the first time where I was like, I feel like I'm really getting the hang of this now. And, um, you know, I, I've literally, I, I just, it's a focus thing. It's I, I, my philosophy on program design has been more influenced by vertical integration than any other concept. And so I always look at it like, okay, I identify the qualities that have to be present in the overall structure of the model. And then, and for me, like as a simple way to say it, it's kind of like lifting for muscle mass, running for speed, uh, and probably throwing and rotating with power. Those are to me kind of like the big, the big, there's sub qualities all over the place inside of the running for speed piece, acceleration starts, elasticity, top speed, blah, blah, blah. But kind of like speed, throw, and muscle are, are, are kind of the, the main ones. And so I, I look at it like, you know, I just toggle them depending upon what's the focus. And, yeah, I live in the cold in the winter, so it, speed can't be a focus for a big chunk of the year. I kind of have, like, uh, May through now. Yeah. as as a possibility for that yeah. and then the other part of the year it's going to be muscle as as the as the focus so i always look at it like well what's the least amount of speed that i can do to just try to maintain it while i focus on the other one what's the least amount of muscle i can do to focus on speed and um and this summer i think was a good one for me muscle wise from maintenance to just hold on to it while i ramped up the speed and my goal with the running that I did and I'm hitting it this week I wanted to build up to tolerate uh 2000 yards of high intensity this week and 6000 yards of low intensity mm-hmm. um and I think I mean I should be able to handle it I just have to get through this week and I feel like I've kind of finally really adapted to being able to actually accept that level of volume of those stimuli, but the lifting it way, way down, you know, it's, uh, and it's been the same volume of lifting for 22 weeks now, uh, which is what I consider maintenance volume to yep. just try to hold on to muscle mass, but there's no way it's going up. You know, it's, yep. it's, I, I've dropped 33 pounds in 22 weeks with fat loss diet plus running and it's helped i think to just shift body composition towards getting lighter and leaner i I remember hearing you years ago say fat don't fly and that was like yeah when i did this three years ago i was 220 something pounds and way too heavy and just got crushed by it and so it's been it's been so much learning but the ability to toggle some of those those volume switches so that you allow the focus to go where you need it to go for those qualities, it's there's a lot of experience I feel like that has to go into that that ability to get there. Um, you so, got to trust. You got to trust it, right? And I think that's what you've gone through is that you know to some degree through trial and error too is that you find that. Okay, uh, if I shift away from the strength, 
um, I feel better on the track, right? If I uh, go back to strength after doing the sprinting, ah, the strength feels a little better now that, you know, things move a little more efficiently, a little cleaner. So there's the, you know, there's, there's definitely this mutual sort of uh, support, supportive nature of strength to speed that once you understand it, you don't, you trust it and you don't get, you don't get anxious or anxiety of like, well, you know, this winter I'm going to do less sprinting. Oh my God, I'm going to be really slow. But even that stuff that you did, you were doing some stuff when you had a bit of a hamstring strain where you're just doing the vertical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, the drills and all that. That's all that you need. You've developed that base and you're not going to lose it if you do just that minimum quantity of, of those foot contacts, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I came back after, and it was, it was for me, like, and I, I had a hamstring injury that took place on one run. It was a 50 that I was running in Austin, Texas. And, you know, it was it was like 105 degrees out that day. I had just taught a two-day seminar prior to that. It was a Monday. I mean, I was just a wreck. I should not have been trying to push. I was running against a friend of mine, but I'm competitive with this guy. So, I mean, I really pushed. And, um, and boom, like I just felt it like right behind the knee, uh, biceps femoris thing. And I just remember being on this track and being like, oh, my God, why did I do that? This was so dumb. And um, it took some time, but I, I, it was what you were talking about. Like, it was kind of like, look, like, if I just keep my fitness, I don't make it worse, you know, just try to simulate the volume and the physiology. If I don't do something stupid, I'll be okay. And I remember finally coming back to it like two weeks ago, something like that now. And the first day out there, God, I felt so good. You know what I mean? Yeah. I actually let the thing heal. And I, I literally felt like I was going to take off like a, like a jet engine or something like that. Um, but it, and, and I've been healthy. I've been able, today was great. I just felt like a, like a, a rocket. Like, I mean, I really, I'm like, holy shit. I really feel like, Whatever it is I've been doing, like, I feel like I'm faster than I've ever been in my entire life and uh, more fit the whole thing. It's like, I wish I did track when I was a kid. Like I I have a a taste for it. I like the the feeling of the training and the math of it and the every run, the feel of it and the sense of it. And I don't know, it's. It's different from it's a totally different stimuli for me yeah. as compared to competing in strength sports. But I like this. It reminds me of being an athlete. I get to I really feel like a an athlete. Yeah, and there's not many people doing it to your level either, right? So if if, if I you know happen upon the track when you guys are running, I'm like, okay, this is special, right? This is not you know some people grunting in a gym where you could go on every you know every corner and find that. So it's 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 quite unique especially at your age to, to do this at this level. And, and that, that hamstring injury, maybe it was just like a market correction, right? And, and maybe you needed a little more rest and, and, and you found some ways to preserve your, you know, qualities that you needed to. And when you came back, you super compensated, right? And that, and that's why I tell people, like, if you have an injury, you know, it's not a blessing in disguise, but certainly it, it, it's, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And, you know, when you come back from it, you will be smarter and 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 better for it. So I think, you know, I I don't I don't get too worked up about you know these little injuries as much as I used to. I thought, ah, oh, it was like 
like you said, oh, I screwed up. And it's like, well, no, it's just, you know, it's just the course of nature to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and for me, I can be very overreactive. Like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world, you know. And I've learned over time, it's not, you know what I mean? Like, it's it, be patient. It'll probably be okay sooner than later as long as I take the hammer away. It's like I've been hitting myself in the thumb with a hammer over and over again. And so many people, they're like, what do I do for hamstring recovery? What do I do? Do I do these eccentric Nordics and this, that, and the other thing? And it's like, look, man, here's, here's what you do. You don't do anything that hurts. Okay. If it hurts, stop doing that thing. Try to make it as similar to what you're trying to do as you can. And if, what you're doing that's similar hurts to get slightly less similar, like keep moving away from it until it's, you know, something you can tolerate, but you can't work. You can't try to, you know, with lifting, sometimes you can just put your head down and, and push through it. Yeah. I feel like with running, particularly running fast, you can't just run through it, you know? So I, I am kind of curious, like, I brought up Nordics. Everybody is always talking about these. Uh, and, and also just kind of like with the re, re, the rehab, the recovery stuff, your thoughts on that is a big picture thing. Uh, yeah. Well, I just got invited to go speak to the athletic trainers, the NFL athletic trainers in March in 2023. And they're like, yeah, we want to talk about, you know, ha- soft tissue rehab. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it's just an exercise progression. It's nothing fancy. And then they, they're going to bring in some guy who's like a Nordic expert from from australia and i'm like ah shit hopefully i'm after that guy or whatever right um but i had a great example of a a division one football player and i was helping the pt um in a pretty pretty big program and this guy had six to seven hamstring strains in the last year which is not that's not right you know something's wrong right and i think they had a new coach and new strength coach and all that that came in took over the program so you know a little shock for this guy and um you know, all we did was just what you said, right? Okay, let's get him to accelerate under safe conditions. And then, you know, some 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 technique work as well and, and you know, get him to do some things a little more efficiently. And so I think it was about a four-week progression of doing this. And they would just check in with me every day, send me videos. And and I'd be like, yep, that's where, that's where, you know, he has to be. How is he the next day? How does he feel? And just figuring things out so that he could probably put in five days a week of consistent sprints. So at the end of this, <laughs> you know, as we get to the end, they said, yes, uh, we, we tested him on the Nord board and he had the best results since we've been here. Right. He's at the blue blew it off the charts. I'm like, did you do any Nordics as part of the rehab? And they said, no, what did you do? We just did your sprint program. And so I'm like, Thank you. Right. I have it in a text, too. I, I created a, a little image of the, the text exchange of that. Right. And 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 the reply was, I knew you would like that. Right. After I said, yes, exactly. That's what I've been telling you. Right. So it's almost like you're asking a question that doesn't need to be answered. Like, what's your Nordboard score? Well, if you've been sprinting and you've been having no problems, I think it's probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it, it begs the question of why are we doing these exercises to fix something that you know, can be fixed by just training properly. Right. So I, I think that's the problem right now with a lot of this technology and, 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 you know, exercise and evaluation. It's like, Oh, let's, 
you know, let's boil it down to a scientific experiment when maybe if we just trained properly and, and, and didn't worry about all that stuff, everything would be okay. How did he hurt himself? Well, he hurt himself running. Well, let's fix his running. Well, that's uh, that's crazy. Why would we do that, right? Why would we make him run to fix his running, right? So I, I get into those discussions a lot with with professionals, and I almost have to like check myself sometimes because I'm like, well, am I an idiot? Am I saying something wrong? Because that's the kind of opposition I get, right? What do you mean we have to sprint to get better at sprinting and without pain, right? Like, oh God. So so that's that's kind of my reply to that yeah. is, what are we doing? Yeah, there's like this six degrees of separation thing that's like, why are we going all the way to, uh, you know, it's like you, you have a, a trip from New York to L.A. And for some reason, you're like, you know, I really think I should just drive to Florida. first. <laughs> you know, like, OK. And and like the, you're like, well, why would you do that? And they're like, well, because fascicle length. And it's like, so. <laughs> Okay, what like do, what's the connection here? I'm not 100% sure. Like it's oftentimes I do find if you give anyone any explanation or justification for anything, people will just be like, "Oh, okay, well, it sounds good. Fascicles, sure." Like and it's it's kind of like, "Well, maybe that is important. I don't know enough about that particular topic. I'm sure there's really smart people out there that have good explanations that can, you know, go a level up beyond what what I can." But yet maybe running well also drives the same kind of physiological change. Maybe we've measured some of those things in response to Nordics, but like, have we actually measured it in response to doing, I don't know, running and, and drills for running form to be able to have mechanical proficiency improve in that drill? Like maybe you get all the same physiological change but with the addition of actually improving the specific thing you're trying yeah, to absolutely. do. So it, 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 that one always does fascinate me. Um, and it, it, the other one, I, I'm kind of curious about your opinion on this, but um, you know, I always think to myself, you hear a lot of people talking about lifting weights fast in the weight room to get faster running. And it's kind of like, why wouldn't you just run to get faster running. Yeah, yeah, I I don't get that either or, you know, throwing a baseball or whatever, right? You want, you know, we're going to lift faster so that you throw a baseball faster and yeah, I I don't know. I I I think it all goes back to this there's two things, right? One is people love the gym. So if I can solve mm-hmm. it in the gym, I want that 100 times over, right? The other part of it is I can measure it. There's like in a way that I don't know that, that, you know, it, it shows up on my phone or it shows up on my, my laptop or whatever. So I've, you know, it's definitely science if I can measure it on my phone or my, my <laughs> laptop. Right. So it's, it's, I think it's this technology thing. It's, I like being in the gym. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I've had this before where I've said, okay, to do your, um, um, to do the hamstring rehab as a physical therapist or an athletic trainer, you need to go out there and you need to go watch every rep and make sure all the mechanics are very good. And, you know, um, you know, it's going to take some time and you have to be there monitoring every rep. Okay. So they go out in there and do it. Right. And so at the end of the week, they're like, Oh my God, that's a lot of work. Right. I, I have to watch every rep. 
They're like, <laughs> yeah, like that's what you have to do. You don't send them off to the corner with like, you know, TheraBand exercises and still charge them, right? So, you know, I think that there's a disconnect around, you know, the effort and the, 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 um, you know, the, the, the investment that goes into solving these problems the right way. And if you solve it the right way and you do it, like I, I, I was talking to some people about this physical therapist, I said, I would rather have somebody come in five consecutive days to my clinic for a lot of these soft tissue injuries. And we would develop momentum and they would understand what that the rest of the treatment is going to go smoothly rather than coming in twice a week or three times a week or whatever. I can create momentum that makes the outcome way better with five consecutive treatments. Right. And that's usually what I do. Um, but again, people are like, well, what do you mean? Nobody will show up for five days in a row. Well, if it makes them a hundred percent better, like, wouldn't you want that? So it's, it's yeah. there's all these weird things going on um, where I think, you know, people don't want to leave the gym. They want to, you know, they think technology is science. And, and I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just totally blown away um, that the easy answer is not necessarily the desirable or popular answer. Mm. You know, when you think of the tools that are available for training athletes, um, you know, I, I kind of think of like you have tools that you can run on. You have tools that you can lift. You have tools that you can throw. Uh, you know, are there particular tools that you think are really overrated or particular ones that you think are just under underrated and not used as much as they could be? Um, it's funny, you know, like I was always brought up with like this, you know, you would time sprints with a stopwatch, right? And then apparently that's not good enough. Like you need to have um, electronic timing and lasers and all that. And, and all the coaches that I had, and even Charlie Francis, like was very proficient with a consistent way of timing people. And it, and it was really just the old like beep, beep, stopwatch, right? And, and usually what he said, you know, would kind of show up when we did do um, electronic timing. And, and I think, you know, that that's part of it. Part of it is like, we need the, you know, somebody I know, a guy that was uh, a guy that's doing my mentorship program, he spent $10,000 on timing gates. Mm. And I, I think the ones I have, uh, what's the company? It's Dasher. I think I spent 1100 mm-hmm. So what is 10 times better than what I got, which basically spits out a time, you know, that's, you know, photoelectric time or whatever, boop, right? So I, I don't know. Some people think it, I got, if I spent 10000 it's it's 10 times better or whatever. So I, um you know, but I, I think a lot of the technology I think is overused and overemphasized, right? We could go into GPS. Like I have, I bought a couple of GPS units, slap them on my son when he plays football. And, and you're like, okay, I kind of know, you know, if he gets a, a post versus route versus this route, I can pretty much tell you what his velocity is going to be now, right? Based on the nature of the play. Mm. Um, or is he on turf versus grass or, you know, and you see it once, you're like, okay, I don't need to see any more. Um, and I think that, you know, people want to pull out the timing gates all the time or, you know, the VBT velocity based training and the, you know, attach it to the bar and like, we're going to measure every rep and how fast it is like, oh my God, that's so much work. Right. You know, it's the kind of the opposite of watching the reps with your eye, but, um, that, that's what I see. Now we could argue like, are people using the barbell too much and, are people pulling sleds too much? I think those are good tools. 
I think it's just how everything is used and how it's applied these days. Um, and and if if I'm working under you, um, I'm going to trust your eye. You're an expert. Like if we go for a lift and you say do this, and I'm I'm going to trust your judgment. Do I need to have like something attached to me to show me? Or, you know, no, I'm going to trust you first. If you take a video of it, we can look at it together. And you're like, this is what I see. Yeah, great. Like, that's why I'm training with you. So I, I think I think there's an insecurity level with certain coaches who don't have the experience or don't have the eye or the confidence. And they're going to fall back on the jump mat or the whatever. Right. You know, and it's like, get rid of that stuff. Just train. You know? Right. Yeah. I've I've heard Doug Kachigian talk about that too. It's like you were measuring all this stuff, and I watched your guys, and they can't even squat to depth. You know, it's like what are we? We're measuring garbage. Like wow, now I have a clearer measurement of trash. Like I could have just looked at it and known it was bad, but now I have confirmation quantitatively that it was awful. Um, yeah, like know, there's that there's that device. Somebody said, oh, you should get that device where you put it on their quad and it tells them if they hit a parallel squat. Like I can just fucking look at them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at like the weight room oftentimes, like I see so many things that make no sense for, for particular goals, you know, and, um, are people just like, they're, they're, they're trying to implement things that are like for super advanced people. And it's like, you're, you're an absolute beginner, you know, there's, there's no need for, for this kind of stuff. And like, for me, the weight room, I'm like, look, like, let's just get uh, something that's a good range of motion, that's well controlled, that's a basic movement, and uh, and and then let's guess what? Progress it. Oh my God! Like, it's it's not like uh, it doesn't have to be uh, the most complicated, perfect thing in the world. It just it really just needs to to check off the big boxes of like, Hey, this is a hinge. This is a squat. This is a push. This is a pull. And let's just first good range of motion, appropriate weight. Like every rep is consistently the same and, and we'll move on. And, you know, I, I do think that sometimes what I've seen in the weight room is that the, the tools technology wise that can give people biofeedback are helpful in the beginning. You know, it's almost like uh, beginners, it's like you, you can tell them like, hey, try to move this fast on the way up. And it's like super slow. And you're like, no, like really move it fast. And they they just don't. But then like you give something that measures it and and you, you show them a number and they're like, do you think you can beat this number? And they beat it a little bit. And you're like, yeah. well, do you think you can beat that number? And they beat it a little bit and they beat it a little bit. And then at a certain point, they understand the concept of like, oh, like, uh, huh, that's, that's pushing it fast. And, and it's kind of like, God, like, how did you not understand that? It makes no sense. But <laughs> the, and, and oftentimes, like, if I'm trying to develop muscle mass, I need you to work really hard on this set to the point where you basically can't do any more reps. And beginners, oftentimes, they actually don't know. They just get uncomfortable and stop. And it's like, hey, if I can show you velocities, and it's like your last rep was the same speed as your first rep. Like, you got more. Like, you have to keep going until it drops off. And then they're like, oh, that sucked. <laughs> like, that was terrible. It's like, yes, but you have to do that every time. 
if you want to move towards your goals. Uh, and then once they get the concept, it's like, yeah, we probably don't need it as much. But the biofeedback for novices is incredibly powerful because I've seen that and, and other tools that are able to show range of motion. Because sometimes I feel like, God, I'll coach people till I'm blue in the face and they just keep doing the same thing. My verbal input is just not creating change. But a, a report card score that's quantitative, they're like, oh, well, let me see if I can beat that. And then they have a bit of autonomy where they did it rather than me doing it. So I, I do think that the right time and use of it is important, but I, I don't hear that many people talk about it from that perspective as a as an aid for learning how to do things right. Uh, they just do it as like, we're tracking. It's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe like there's old school ways of doing that where, I mean, as you know, as a youngster, like, you know, hey, I'm going to race my friend and see, and the competition would be the measuring stick, right? Yep. Um, and maybe we don't have enough of that nowadays. Um, but I, I still think like, I think back to like things that I was, was, you know, I was made to do, um, by, you know, kind of the sciencey people. And the two things that stick out was like, remember, did you ever do isokinetic testing of like ham quad ratios? Yeah. Right on the leg extension machine or whatever, the Cybex Orthotron, whatever. And I remember getting those done as a kid and I'm like, okay. Well. Then, then somebody would come up with like a lab coat and like, well, your quads are stronger than your hamstrings. That's why your, your ankle hurts. Right. <laughs> Which is utter bullshit. Right. Um, so I think at an early age, I, I figured out like, okay, the guys in the lab coats you got to watch out for. <laughs> um, and the other one was, I remember I was, again, I was a, a long jumper, triple jumper. And then somebody made me do a VO2 max on a treadmill. Oh, that was horrible. That was like the worst experience. Like you put on the mouth, you're like, oh, fuck, I can't breathe with this thing on. And then they could make you run to exhaustion, right? With the, the treadmill going up. And I'm like, well, that was totally useless. Like, what does that tell you, right? It was just more of like a rite of passage of getting the lab test done. So I think I've had a healthy dose of those things too, that maybe have made me a little more like, you know, you know, discerning when I'm looking mm. at stuff. And and so it does, I mean, does it make you better? Like you said, progress, like, am I getting better? That's, that's, you know, at what I want to get better at. Um, whether it's, you know, whether it's rehab too, right? Like, like we talked about, like, is this Nordborg going to make me run faster and in a healthy state? Uh, but this, I know the running training program will get you faster and will, will get you back. Right. So, um, you know, I'm trying to like cut the fat, trim the fat with a lot of that stuff nowadays. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when we get to a level where you and I are at, I think some, you know, it's our, it's our job to some degree to call bullshit on stuff and say like, what are you doing? Like, come on. And I like that you do that on your social media. Right. So I'm like, Oh, great. You know, like somebody's saying it, right. I don't want to be the, the only guy, but um, I think you got to call people out and, and, and do it in a professional way. And I think that's necessary nowadays. Yeah. I mean, look, like I think that I love old fables and stories and things like that. And the emperor has no clothes is one of my favorite, you know, and, and I do think we're in an industry where, where a lot of times, there's a lot of naked emperors wandering around and nobody, nobody says anything, but they keep complimenting their beautiful threads and wonderful robes and things. Like that. And I feel like I'm like, am I crazy here or is this just absolute nonsense? Like there's to me, 
uh, I'm looking at this and it doesn't add up and I'm going to say something about it. And maybe I'll put my foot in my mouth, but more often than not, like I, I don't know if it's how I was raised, the people that raised me, but you know, I, I, I really think that I'm grateful for like the cranky old grandparents that I had that raised me that were like, don't be a, you know, it's funny. Like uh, when I think of the subconscious voices that are going through my head, It'll be like the most common one is don't be a goddamn fool. You know, I, I can remember hearing my grandfather say that a million times when I was a kid. And uh, he'd say things like, just open your damn eyes. The answers are right in front of you. And, it, you know, he was very much like a, a person that was like, why do you think that you just need to go along with what every everything that's happening in front of you? Open yeah. your eyes. And just look at what's in front of you and really think about it and and just analyze, does this make any bit of fucking sense? And a lot of times it's like, you know, I don't I don't really I don't really think that this is a a one to one match here. You know, what's what's the deal? And um But it's no, tough. I, I, it's like, tough okay, to, like, okay, I'm going to challenge you. What is the one thing right now where you look at it and you go like, what the fuck? I'll tell you mine first, right? Mine is when I see somebody on their back and either they got the band across the power rack or they got the oh. BOSU ball or the, the sw- and they're doing this with their legs on it. And they're like, oh, this is for speed. This is going to, you know, the velocity of this will help the hamstring. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. The flutter kick to the band. Yes. yes. You could do that in the pool, right? You yeah. Know, and it's just because it's bouncing on a rubber band. You're like, have you ever sprinted? Right? Yeah. So that one really kills me. That's a good one. That, you know, like I I hate seeing people that tr- like because I, I in Manhattan, it's all personal training and it's all body composition, personal training. And I consistently see people having clients pushing the sled for body composition. And I'm like, this is the, this is so dumb on so many levels because number one, it's, it just, there's, if you're going to change muscle tissue, there's like a few things that should be in place. Like you want some level of eccentric part of the exercise. That's not in this. You want a large range of motion. That is not in this little steps. You want like a big stretch to be put on the trained muscle, not in it whatsoever. And it's really hard. It's unbelievably fatiguing. So you put in this incredible effort and you get none of the stimuli and everybody just applauds it. They're like, oh, great work, great effort. Like, I just love this tool. And so it drives me crazy because of how ineffective it is for the specificity. But everyone just gets really excited about it. And facilities hinge on whether or not they have space for these things. Like people are like, well, we got to have a lane and a runway for sled work. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a personal training gym, right? Like we're not we're not training uh, football players, right? Like, correct. Well, don't they don't they call it like do they call it a prowler? Yeah, they yeah, they don't even call it a sled. They go by the brand. 
the prowler. Yeah, just... which was the, the pervert in the neighborhood going through the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, yeah, you might need it to like push the garbage cans up to the window to be able to stand there, peep in there. That, that it's pretty specific, actually. There's for a that prowler. <laughs> we got to practice for that population. We'll do agility ladder drills where you pull <laughs> your pants down around your ankles and we'll do ducking drills and all, yeah, all sorts of stuff. This is a, you know, I remember years ago you sent me this message about like um, a training book for, for e-game athletes. Yeah, esports. Yeah. I should have jumped on that with you. I mean, we probably would have made a bazillion dollars. That and pickleball. But the, the uh, sled pushing thing, you know who ruined it for all of us? Arnold Schwarzenegger and Conan the Barbarian in that scene oh, where he's pushing the, the milling, right? And then they show him every year he gets bigger and stronger. I think that ruined it. You know, that's a strongman event. It's Conan's <laughs> wheel. And uh <laughs> I don't know if I have like an anatomical thing with my aorta or something. It was my heart, but I, I did one event, one show where that was an event and I picked the thing up and it was right on my chest and I took one step and blacked out. And <laughs> the next thing I know, I had this, you know, six foot five shaved head guy with a beard because everybody at Strongman is six five with a shaved head and a beard. And he's like slapping me back <laughs> awake and I'm like, what's happening? And he's like, man, you went out instantly with that. And I rem- I do remember like picking it and just being like, wow. oh, this feels bad. Like I don't know what's wrong with this, but it was one step and just immediate blackout. Uh, yeah, that was about as bad in a short period of time as I've ever felt in my life. But yeah, that would also be a poor choice for hypertrophy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good for blood pressure, apparently. But yeah. Oh my god! Like I. It, that was a, like I can remember like the maybe 1.2 seconds of participating in that event and just being like, <laughs> oh, this is a bad feeling, and then just being slapped awake. Uh, <laughs> you know, my my last my last question. I, I definitely want to respect your time. Let you get going here. Um, is with that the tens shuttle protocol? Because uh, you know, for for people that have not ever utilize this thing this thing's a monster you know like i and what i've been doing i i kind of built it up you know i i I started with uh i think just one set of of 10 and this week i have the the 10 sets of 10 on saturday that i'm uh, you did it you did the 10 i did nine sets this past saturday yeah and this coming saturday is 10 sets oh can you film the whole thing for me i want to see that yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, At least like one, four, eight, and ten. Like yeah, you know, I can, yeah. I can, I can take care of that for you. It's a monster, you know. Like in terms of like all around uh, stimulus and muscle, the conditioning element of it, the mental, like everything, yeah, is is kind of in this thing, and it's very safe. You know, it's like no one's hurting themselves in this. No. But I'm kind of curious, like the the origins for you of like where where you kind of developed this and and built it out to this. Well, I mean, I get, sense of it. Yeah, Love. ten. Like I remember when I was I, I, I when I was first fooling around with this, I said, okay, I'm gonna do this on consecutive days, like ten days in a row, which was 
not good. Don't do that. Okay. So, cause I got to like day seven or an eight and I thought I was just, I couldn't even like leave. I couldn't get walk home. I couldn't get home. Right. Um, but it does feel like it, you know, when you, when you get over six sets of 10 by 10, you know, so that's 60, 10 meter sprints or 10 yard sprints. It feels like I lifted the whole gym, right? Like mm -hmm. upper body, chest, back, everything. Right. So I, when I started feeling that, I'm like, okay, this is really different. This is, um, but, but it, it actually started again as a, it was a rehab program. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you know, you build up volume with 10 yard sprints and you don't, you know, tax the hamstring too much, right? You're too in, in too much knee flexion, uh, to, to, to stretch the hamstring. So, uh, and this was, you know, again, it came from Gerard Mock, Charlie Francis, right? Um, and so, you know, I started doing that as part of my hamstring rehab program, which I still do. And it still works brilliantly. Um, you know, and I, I teach people around the world, like, this is what you do, right? Whether it's soccer or field hockey, whatever, anywhere, I'll, I'll teach it, right? Uh, but then I started thinking, well, everybody who's returned from that hamstring protocol has been pretty fantastic on the field, whether it's like World Cup soccer or NFL or NBA. And I've used it in all those uh, venues, right? Um, and, and they haven't lost fitness and some of them are reported they feel better, right? So I'm thinking, why should I wait until I pull my hamstring to do this, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, you know, like, so now I will incorporate it as part of uh, a general conditioning program. Or if somebody has a limited space, they can do that for, you know, again, uh, re rep repetitive sprints that, you know, it's just like football, like you do repetitive sprints in football or soccer or tennis or whatever. So it, it's, it's not, it's, it's sort of sports specific, but it's not, it's like a general fitness program. And I think, um, you know, like you said, you're not going to get hurt. So, Hey, I've got a bunch of middle-aged guys who want to get into shape. That's what we start with. I have a, I have an MMA athlete who ruptured his, uh, his left bicep. And so we're introducing this because he's not going to run that fast. His arms are working. So he gets to stress that, uh, in a conditioning way. And I think it's going to help with his MMA. He's like a world champion for, uh, the one fighting championship. And it's like an Asian based. Um, so he's about 250 pounds and he's doing 10 by tens and he's like, wow, that feels really good. Yeah. So I know you pick, you pick your poison. Like, do you want to do it for fighters? Do you want to do it for football players, tennis players? I've had some long distance runners do it. Um, it's just an alternative to get some sort of different. And, and in that modality for like a marathon or a 10 K runner, that's strength training for them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you can mix and match it however you want different start positions. Um, you know, you can shorten the recovery times a bit. You can lengthen them. And I think it's it's a really good program to start people with because it 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 gives them that volume, you know, to get them in shape in a safe manner. And then if you want to branch out to longer sprints, you can do that. Mm -hmm. If you want to go do longer runs or, you know, then start folding in a weight program, you're probably going to be pretty good. You're going to be able to handle those initial stages of that weight program pretty good because you won't have any muscle soreness because you just went through that. So. Yeah, it's got a lot of really nice muscle activity in it from the standpoint of, you know, uh, the isometric from the start, the concentric, nice, uh, really more like a ballistic 
first kind of a activity. And then a lot of eccentric st- uh, stress Absolutely. as well from slowing down. If you do, um, yeah, if you're doing that 10 by 10 for 10 sets, that's 100 accelerations, but yeah. it's also 100 decelerations, yep. right? So it's, ama- it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's almost so simple that you, nobody will do it. <laughs> well, it's hard. It's, it's really yeah, it's hard. hard. Like, you know, uh, I don't, I, 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 I run with, with another guy that's in really good shape, Seth. And, you know, it's hard to, like, he's a, he's like a little dog. Like, it's hard to, like, he was a very high level soccer player. Like, I, running tempos with that guy, he just chews them up. Like, he can handle volume and stress. But, uh, those shuttles are what get him, you know, wow. they kill him, they crush him. And, um, I'm like, finally, at least now you know what it feels like to be me on tempo runs. Uh, (laughs) But it's, uh, yeah, I I really have, that's where I ended up building my volume for some of the high intensity stuff. Because at a certain point, it's like, you know, with these a little bit longer, even 30 or or higher, it starts to get a little bit like, hey, if you're fatigued, you got to be really careful. Yes. You know, 40s, 50s, even the 60s with the alternating speed in them, they're yep. great. But if you're fatigued and you hit one of those wrong, like the, the risk is higher. Yes. Um, but those the 10 shuttle, you know, do you do you consider that one? Do you put that into your high intensity bucket? Um, It, it depends. It depends on. um. Uh, you know, it depends on other things that you're doing in your program, because mm-hmm. if people are doing like the 30, 40, 50, 60 meter sprints, um, I may, their tolerance for, you know, sprinting is very high. If they can do that successfully and hit high volumes, then maybe this does become a conditioning element. Uh, if you're not quite there, this could be the primary, the 10 by 10 could be the primary stimulus yeah. until you start replacing it with faster runs or longer, longer sprints. Um, but I've, I've, I've moved it around everywhere. Like I, I'll do mm. it. Uh, I'll get people to do that first and then finish with a few tempo runs. I'll get them to do their full sprint workout. And then I've used that as a conditioning stimulus after yeah. a, a conventional sprint workout. So that's kind of the beauty of it is you can kind of move it around and just manipulate it a bit. And depending on the context of that athlete, it can become a conditioning stimulus. It can become a strength training stimulus. It can become a speed and acceleration stimulus. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of cool, I think. Um, yeah, I'm that, glad to hear you say that because that's kind of what I've done with it in this training block as well because it gets tricky with, with higher volumes. I'm at a much higher volume than I've ever done before. And you're kind of like, oh, I really don't want to add anything to this day. Like the number of reps is already kind of like i can't jam more into this you know i got i got one day where i've I've got 15 30 yard sprints in it and two 40s and i do the 40s first and then there's all these 30s that come after it and it's like i'm not throwing any more volume on that day like that day is a monster um and so it's kind of like like where do i put the rest of the volume that i'm trying to hit and so Saturday at the end of the week kind of became like this little bit of a mixed bag thing. And it's got kind of like the high intensity warm up with some of the, you know, high knees into a 20 and butt kicks into a 20 and falling 20s and falling 30s. And then it rolls into the shuttle. And after the shuttle, it's got some tempo runs. And it's kind of like it's 
it's a challenging day, but it works. It seems to work and allow for, you know, the volume to be tolerable. And then, you know, I give myself Sunday off and kind of get back into the, the, the high intensity work again on Monday. But it's, it's tricky from like a logistical perspective to figure out what to do with all this stuff at a certain point, you know, like. Yeah. But, but I mean, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're putting yourself in these situations so that now you understand what the stress is of, of that volume at that velocity. Um, And then now, you know, like, that's the best thing is like, if you put yourself in that situation, now, you know, what the, like one of the toughest workouts we would do is two sets of four by 60, four Mm -hmm. times, you know, with full recoveries. So you're doing eight sixties, which is very risky, right? Yeah. So you got to start opening up recovery so that you give the athlete adequate time to recover. But the exposure to stress of the hamstring is is really high, right? Yeah. Um, but but once you've been there, you kind of know, like, okay, you know, if you see something that looks a little weird or you feel something, like, okay, we can cut it off at six. And I, you know, that's still a pretty good volume to have, right? You know. So that's, you know, plus your warmups, you're getting close to, um, you know, what, 244, 80, you know, you're getting close to 600 meters of sprint volume. Um, so I, I just, I think you got to take yourself there. Like you've, you've done with all your stuff, all your lifting. If you, if you have to take yourself there so that you come come back and tell people the story, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is what I did. Like, holy shit, it was great. Uh, it was scary, but I did it. Right. And now I know. Right. I don't so, see how else you'd ever really know. That's yeah. not, you know, it's kind of like I there's a, there's enough talking heads out there in this industry. But it's like, well, have you ever really done it? You know, have you ever really like put your ass on the line? And um because if you haven't, I'm like, I don't know. I don't really know if if what you're saying is like logistically feasible. Um you know, so I, I, I really do. I don't know how many more years I have to be able to do that either. So I'm trying to really make sure that I do it while I can in terms of like, hey, what yeah. is what is possible from a tolerance standpoint? And can I, you know, how far can I build myself up into even at, at my age? Because I, I, I have the luxury of being able to do that. You know, I, I have the time and the freedom and the willingness to see like, hey, like what's what's possible here? What can I recover from? Yeah, you're you are trying to be like Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick, right? Like you are the only guy that could teach this mission because you're the only guy who fought, you know, whatever, had a dogfight against those guys, right? And I think I, I you know, I love that movie, right? Because yes, to some degree, he's the only guy that can pull off that mission. Right? Because right? right. he's kind of been there, right? And he's showed everybody. So I think we all have to have that sort of um, spirit behind what we do. And, and yeah, okay. Are you going to hire this guy who has, you know, 2 million uh, Instagram followers? Or are you going to hire a guy who actually fucking did it? Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I hear exactly where you're coming from. That's a, uh, I mean, that, now I feel, first of all, it's a phenomenal movie and I feel so much <laughs> better about myself. And I did before this, so that that really goes a long way. Yeah, you're like, like Tom Cruise. Yeah, you know, I I mean, that's one of the reasons why I really like Mike Isretel as well. You know, he's coming from the bodybuilding side of things, but you know, he's gonna do everything that he 
would put down in theoretical frameworks as well. And then it also gives him this incredible power of being like, look, like at a certain point, if we are training for hypertrophy, like here are the windows of volume that advanced people really need to do. But if you think about it, the only way you can ever actually do this is to structure your weeks like this. And it's like, oh, okay, that actually, but you'd never know that unless you had skin in the game, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and to me, that's such a missing piece where it's kind of like, you can have all the tech that you want. You can have all of the, you know, research, research. papers. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, you know, how do you actually get the job done? Have you ever had your hands in the dirt and tried to grow these crops, you know? Because I want to know someone that's got the theory, but I also want to know that they've been in there and actually really tried to figure it out in in the ultimate testing grounds, which to me is the competitive world of, of high-level sports. So, yeah. Yeah, I was showing, just so you know, I was showing my son your energy system presentation that I recorded back in Boston in 2015 or 16. And, and, and the whole point of it was one, you were interesting, good information. And then you actually fucking train. So then it's, it's, it's more interesting to him. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, there's credibility behind him watching you as a, you know, I, I'm not going to shit talk his professors at university, but, um, but, but certainly, uh, you're much more credible in my eyes. And so he could probably see the same thing. Right. And, and, and he'll be more engaged in his learning. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, like I, I really, when I was doing my master's degree, the woman that ran the strength and conditioning program, Ellen Robinson at Bridgewater state university, you know, she, she lived it and you could see it right away. Like this is somebody, you know, she has a uh, master's weightlifting uh, world records and it just, I'm telling you one look at this woman and you know, like she's all in um, and she, she's an incredible athlete, but everything that she taught, whether it was plyometrics or agility drills, she physically could do these things at a very high level, obviously weightlifting and, and resistance training. Everything was flawless as she demoed it and talked about it. And it was like, I want to be this person. Like, this is the person that I want to be. And, um, and I'll tell you, like, yeah, that instant street cred with her was just like, you know, there's, there's, there's no questioning it. Like it's, it's the books, it's the, it's the ability. And, you know, I, I remember, uh, looking at some of the old Soviet training things and, and some of their coaches and you really couldn't be a coach over there apparently, unless you had like that combination of the very high academic background, but also participated in the sport itself. And uh, that lack of participation, I think over here is it's like either people participated or they're academic and there's yeah. not that blending of the two that I do think is so critical to really advancing and having mastery be accomplished. And so, uh, you know, I, when I saw her and the way she was teaching, it kind of like, for me, it was a very simplistic one-to-one. -one. Like I want to be as close to this person 
in what I do career-wise as I possibly can. And I still do. Like, I still always want to be the the walk-the-walk, non-talking head version of this stuff. Yeah. And when I when I see other people that have a a similar kind of a thing, I always feel like a sense of like brotherhood or, you know, something along those lines with those people. So it's definitely the case with you. Um, Well, yeah, it's good to see you out there sprinting because like I'm 53. And uh, when I look at myself, like somebody will video video me sprinting and I'm like, oh, fuck, I look like an old slow guy. Right. So it's a little it's it's not as credible with me anymore. So, but when I see you run, it's like, oh, okay, he's he's moving, right? So, um, yeah. So use the next couple of years wisely and just you know exhaust that, right? So, I can feel that window closing, man. Like, it is, I, yeah, I really it closes can. hard on the fingers, right? Yeah, like it, it's funny because right now I can kind of remember and feel like you know this is what it used to feel like when I was like sixteen. Yeah. And, I could move, you know, I've gotten myself to a pretty good place, but the ability to sustain that, that speed element, you know, it's, it's, it's got a, I, 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 I recognize that, that it's probably a few years at best that's, that's left there. So I, I do want to maximize that. Yeah, no, that's, that. I think you're right. I think you got some good years ahead of you. Yeah. But uh, savor every moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, Derek, I just want to thank you. This has been a pleasure for me. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing you when you come to New York for this uh, this level two running mechanics certification. Likewise. Yeah, I'll uh, hope hopefully we can get together and, and do some more stuff together. And uh, definitely, definitely in 2023, too. We're going to get yeah. you back up to Vancouver to do some stuff, too. No question. Uh, where can people go uh, to find out more information? What what kind of uh, spots do you have available? Uh, basic websites are runningmechanics.com for the courses and just the consulting is sprintcoach.com and, and just basically go to Instagram. I, you know, kind of park myself there at, at Derek M. Hansen or at running mechanics. And um, I just, I try to use those, those uh, venues to kind of just, say like, look, this is what I'm presenting. I'll put up graphics and like, this is going to be in the presentation. So it gives them a taste. Mm. Well, I, I, uh, actually, when I was at the track this past weekend, there was a young man there who was a 200 meter runner and he was kind of coming over to me being like, Hey, what's your deal? And I was like, Hey man, you got to check out Derek's stuff. So I pointed him in your direction, but <laughs> any, anybody that ever asks me about running or sprinting or developing speed and power and athleticism, I always am sending them your way. So uh, I've I've learned so much from you over the years, and I'm looking forward to doing the same going forward into the future. This was an absolute pleasure for me, and uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. Likewise, likewise, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you. I got to get you back on with Don Saladino and I too. So uh, more things to talk about. So yeah, I'm always game. Anyways, thank, uh, thank you, Pat.